First off, I want to thank Justin and Jen and all of you for inviting me to speak today. I never get over here anymore on Sunday mornings, for obvious reasons. But I feel like I see you people all the time. You're on the news. <laughs> you're in the paper, and you're all over the internet. You are letting your light shine, and it is love made visible, and it is a beautiful thing. I'm also grateful for the chance to spread the word, <coughs> excuse me, spread the word about a couple of things going on over at the First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis. First, if you are available this evening, the Reverend Kelly Clement, First Universalist own, is giving a concert at 6 p.m. And then, as Jen mentioned, on April 11th, my ordination will take place at FUS. You are all invited to celebrate this milestone. You will not all fit. <laughs> it's a little smaller over there, but come if you can, and we'll be cozy, and we'll make it work. I'm also very pleased to be able to talk about your monthly theme of change, because it's something I know about in a very personal way. Barely five years ago, I was a person sitting in these pews in awe of the amazing ministers of this congregation and trying to figure out whether to make a big change in my life and go to seminary. And as you should know, if you don't already, there's something about this congregation that does that to people. <laughs> I know of a half dozen unsuspecting First Universalistas who are now ministers or in seminary. So be careful out there. <laughs> you may feel a light bulb switch on over your head, or a restlessness, or a stirring. It can be a little scary and expensive. <laughs> but the number of ministers whose call begins here is a wonderful sign of how well this place does ministry. As someone who became a minister in midlife, I do occasionally get asked whether ministry was something I had always wanted to do. The answer is no, not really. I was more on the light bulb end of how it happened. If ministry had occurred to me earlier, I probably would have tried to do it earlier, to make the change earlier in my life. But one thing I've recently begun to wonder about is why didn't it occur to me earlier? Being a minister seems like such a normal fit for me now. What obstacle was obscuring my view? I think in my case, a big part of it was identity, and the idea that identity can be an obstacle to change. It didn't occur to me to become a minister because of how I identified myself. I didn't identify as a minister. I didn't see myself as minister material. I am way too shy about public speaking, and I am terrible at it, I would say, in conversations with myself. I'm not a leader. I don't even supervise anybody at work. Who would follow me around the block? <laughs> Plus, I self-identified as lazy. <laughs> Ministers work really hard. I don't know if I want to work that much. This was not a self-esteem issue, but rather how I saw myself in relationship to the world. I didn't realize that my identity or more precisely, my self-identity, had long been one of the obstacles to me making any kind of big change. It had been keeping me from changing my mind or my heart about what I wanted to do. If I was only able to identify, identify myself as being a certain way, then that was the way I was going to be. 
Fortunately, a number of people helped me look at myself from new angles, and I found my way into a ministerial identity and into the amazing position I have today. To further explore this idea of identity and change, I want to take a moment to share a little story from Sister Simone Campbell. Do you all know about Sister Simone? She spoke at the most recent UU General Assembly in Providence, and she was here in Minneapolis in November at the Westminster Town Hall Forum downtown. Maybe you're at GA or at Westminster, or maybe you heard the forum on the radio. Sister Simone is best known for the nuns on the bus. These are the Catholic nuns who travel around the country advocating for voting rights and immigration rights, health care and economic justice. And they used to get in trouble with the Vatican before the recent change in personnel over there. <laughs> At Westminster, Sister Simone told the story of visiting a food shelf in Kentucky. While she was there, she met a man who she figured was in his mid to late 70s he was a recipient of food stamps and supplemental security income, but money was still very tight for him and for his wife, so he was grateful for the food shelf. Sister Simone asked the man whether he was going to vote. Oh yes, he said, he always votes. And though she of course didn't ask, he also told her who he always voted for. Sister Simone listened to him and then thought to herself, whoa, all those programs that this man is using to survive on are opposed by the politicians he's voting for. She didn't say that to him, but she did ask him why he voted the way he did. Mitch understands me, the man said. Mitch understands me. So this man, who is dependent on the government for basic needs, felt that Mitch McConnell understood him, despite the fact that Mitch McConnell has championed some big cuts in food stamps. Sister Simone cited this story as an example of the human need to feel understood trumping all else. Through some combination of political advertising and media coverage, this man felt understood and he supported a politician who might literally reduce the amount of food on his plate. To Sister Simone's observation, I want to add that this man's identity, his political identity and quite possibly his racial identity, made him impervious to the fact that he was voting against his basic needs. Facts were not going to matter. Facts were not going to lead him to change. Whoever said change is the only constant wasn't related to voters like this. <laughs> we, see a lot of, we see this a lot in our world right now, a lot of doubling down, a lot of people rejecting facts that might change their mind, facts that might call into question their identity as a person who knows the world a certain way. Some of this, this tribalism in America, is the legacy of one of the most brilliant, devious, horrible, and successful political calculations in human history. It took place starting nearly 400 years ago, and it was the division of poor people into races. If you've seen Race, The Power of an Illusion during the showings this month here at First Universalist, you know the story. 
but for those who haven't, I'll give a brief version. In the 1600s, poor white servants and black slaves, realizing their common misery in the American colonies, saw the benefits of joining forces against their wealthy white overlords. The white ruling class, seeing that they were outnumbered, realized that classifying poor people by race by making up reasons for white people to see blacks as beneath them was the best way to create rifts and keep order. The two great divisions of society are not the rich and poor, but white and black, said John C. Calhoun, South Carolina's, South Carolina's senior senator in 1848. He added that all the whites, the poor whites as well as the rich, belong to the upper class and should be treated as such. This, by the way, is the guy after whom Lake Calhoun is named. <laughs> but that's another sermon. <laughs> now, we do not know the racial views of the man who talked to Sister Simone at the food shelf. But we do know that he somehow identified strongly with a very wealthy senator whose daily life was absolutely nothing like his own. The man's perspective reminded me of the familiar quote from John Steinbeck. Socialism never took root in America because the poor see themselves not as an exploited proletariat, but as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. <laughs> temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Identity tr trumps reality. And these long-standing divisions by race and class identity can keep individuals from changing which can keep systems from changing. We saw these struggles, as Frederick described, in the pre-civil rights era South, and we see them still today. Of course, the danger in talking about the man at the food shelf or the working class whites with baseball bats in Selma is that doing so may fuel a feeling of our own superiority and lead us to absolve ourselves of responsibility for the way things are. If only those people would change. If only those people would let go of their tribalism and their identities and definitions and get on with changing. But the world will not move, but we will not move the world forward if we ourselves are unchanging people. Doing what has always been done gets us where we always have been. So a place to start is by asking ourselves about our relationship to change in our own lives. What newnesses do we welcome? If you were a guest house, a guest house as described in the poem that Jen read, how would you rate for greeting each new thing that arrives in your life? Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, teach each guest honor, treat each guest honorably he may be clearing you out for some new delight. Hearing the poem offers us an opportunity to look at how we and our identities welcome the new. And the story behind the poem, as we know it, may also help us think about the relationship between identity and change. I've liked that poem ever since I first heard it. I also like the song, Come, Come, Whoever You Are which is a beautiful round in our hymnal, and I think quite a lot of you know it. Both the poem and the lyrics to the song are attributed to Rumi, a 13th century Persian mystic, theologian, 
and poet. But you may have noticed that in your order of service where we listed the poem, it says Rumi as imagined by Coleman Barks. When I first heard some of Rumi's poetry and when I first heard Come, Come, Whoever You Are, I didn't know about the critiques of Coleman Barks' versions of Rumi, which have been wildly popular and which some critics say are more creative interpretation than translation. Creating literal translations can be tricky, of course, especially across language and culture and centuries. So it can be hard to even decide what literal would mean. And without Bark's efforts, millions of people might never have heard of Rumi at all, including me. Still, I've been surprised at the sharpness of some of the critiques I've read. Here's one from an Iranian-born writer, Majid Nafisi. No doubt that Coleman Barks' version of Rumi has released these poems from the confines of departments of Near Eastern studies. But unfortunately, he has tied them in the cage of his own personal taste. In order to remodel and fix Rumi for the American market, Barks follows the path of a New Age Sufi. He tries to connect tries to disconnect the mystical concepts of Rumi from their historical and social backgrounds and modify them for our contemporary taste. Now, I am not nearly enough of a scholar to fully evaluate these critiques. Scholar is not one of my identities. But I reacted to them with a couple of identities that I do claim. In my identity as a writer, I reacted negatively to the idea of someone rewriting a work in significant ways without many readers knowing, even though even Nafisi acknowledges that the result is better poetry than the original. And as someone who self-identifies as anti-colonial, I'm concerned about the cultural and religious whitewashing of a Middle Eastern poet. My views on these things are pretty cut and dried, and yet, if I hold fast to these identities in an absolutist way, what are my options? To never sing come, come ever again? Sitting in silent integrity while those around me create gorgeous harmonies? Must I discard a poem that, I, that creatively addresses the human condition because I don't approve how it came to be in its present form? If I don't stick by these identities, how authentic am I being? And if I stick with them and don't absorb other viewpoints, how different am I from an impervious, never-changing voter? One identity to cultivate, one that's worth cultivating, is as a person who can embrace ambiguity. Ambiguity sometimes gets a bad rap as being wishy-washy or non-committal. But in many cases, dichotomies are overrated. Ambiguity is a plus because we don't live in a cut and dried world. Ambiguity is not indifference. An indifferent person would say, I don't care how this poem came to be in this form. I like it and it speaks to me. A person who lives with ambiguity, however, can hold multiple thoughts in tension and see the human experience for the complicated creature that it is. I do care how this poem came to be and I learned by hearing its story and I like the poem, and it speaks to me. Stepping away from poetry for just a moment, let me offer another example of embracing multiple points of view. Police departments do important, dangerous work, 
and they are accountable to the communities they serve. Truly incorporating all that we know, all that is knowable, and crafting a new orientation, a new identity, crafting it with intention, allows us to change our minds and ourselves with integrity. So we've explored the idea of people who don't change even though we might wish they would, and we've explored how a relationship with a poet might change even though we wish it hadn't. It often seems like we live in a world where the things we wish would change don't, and the things we don't want to change are the ones that do. It can be hard to be a hope-filled, love-filled person when this is how things so often seem to go. When I need hope, I turn to stories. And I tend to turn to stories from the here and now. Stories about the way things are that might cast some of their glow onto the way things might be. Frederick's call to worship this morning is just the kind of thing that reminds us of the possibility of positive change. So I'm going to share a couple of stories. One big story that I think you know and many of you were a part of, and a much smaller personal story that also lifts my spirits around the idea of living and loving across change. The first hopeful story, which I'll recount only briefly because I said most of us know it, is the story of the Minnesota Anti-Marriage Amendment. We can't pat ourselves on the back forever about this because we need our hands for other work. <laughs> but we can still be very proud of the brave and transformative work that was done. A lot of people left the sheltered ports and the calm waters of their daily lives to get others to vote no. So we can look to the story for a dose of hope, particularly around issues of identity and change. Opposition to marriage equality is never based on any actual danger. To opponents, however, marriage equality was a threat to their identity, to their personal identity, as a very specific kind of religious person who feels called to enforce a narrow and inaccurate idea of morality. Marriage equality was also a threat to their idea of Minnesota's identity. They saw their home state as slipping ever more into liberality. But change happened. Hearts changed, minds changed, votes changed. Not everyone changed, of course, but enough people changed their minds that we, we became the first state to turn back one of these amendments by popular vote. And change did not happen through television ads or bumper stickers. It happened through one-on-one -on -one conversations, conversations that were difficult, often because the people involved loved one another but started with different viewpoints and different identities. It's not clear how those successes might translate to bringing change to other areas of society because those conversations often took place within racial and class groups and not across them. But that electoral victory was a series of small human miracles, and one we can look to for hope when we feel like nothing ever changes. My final story is a small one, but it's one, that's taught, it's one that has taught me about how to be when things change, how to love across change. I think this one is particularly useful for thinking about relationships with our congregations. 
as they inevitably change from week to week and year to year, with new visitors and new members and changing staffs. Perhaps you'll find this story useful for looking at a change in some aspect of your own life. So I have one niece, no nephews, and no more are expected. So this one niece, whose name is Elizabeth, gets a lot of my attention. About a year and a half ago, when she was six, she and her parents came to town to visit my partner and me. This was my first time in the role of being an uncle to a six-year-old. On the previous visit, she had been a five-year-old. <laughs> the time before that, she was just three. I'm not a parent, but I figured out this is how it works. <laughs> and so when she and her parents were here on that trip, I took us all to the same playground that we had gone to on one of their earlier visits. Once we were there, however, I soon realized that most of the climbing areas in this particular playground were designed for preschoolers, kids younger than Elizabeth now was. My ever-changing niece at the age of six had outgrown that playground. She would not ever be a preschooler again. I very much enjoyed her younger days, but I couldn't hold on to those experiences. I can cherish them, but I couldn't hold on to them. That trip to the playground helped me realize that I needed to not only cherish the past, but also celebrate what was new and celebrate the change. The things Elizabeth could do as a six-year-old that she couldn't do when she was three or four or even five. Celebrate the new things I could teach her in her new identity as a six-year-old. Elizabeth is now eight, and she's figured out how to text and to call me on FaceTime. And she's already turning out to be much smarter than any of her relatives. <laughs> I can tell it won't be long before I will be facing another shift in identity, from uncle as teacher to uncle as learner. But it will be a delightfully ambiguous combination of roles. It's a change of identity that I welcome, one that will take place on a strong foundation of love. As we prepare to go forth from this place today, may we embody both the constancy and the nimbleness we hope to see in the world. May our identities give us both roots and wings. May we say yes to life, to truth, and to love through all that does not change and through all that does change. May it be so, and amen. <laughs>